Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Now, we live in this beautiful um, and yet strange world where it seems like on one end there is an opportunity to observe um, the goodness and the beauty and the creation around us, and on the other end there is a sense of unsettledness and strangeness in the season that we're in. On reflecting on that, I feel that one of the reasons we have sensed this um, more sizable feeling of division, uncertainty, angst, worry, um, has a lot to do with where our world has come. You see, at the beginning of the 14th century, historians and sociologists describe this new era that out of the medieval times became the beginning of the modern era. The modern era was marked by a few specific things that literally changed the world. Uh, there was technological advancement. Um, there was urbanization. People were moving from farms for the first time into towns and villages. Uh, even communication with inventions like the printing press, the Renaissance. Um, and probably one of the biggest ones was uh, the advancement of science and the scientific method. All of these things, which led up to the Industrial Revolution, uh, began to make the world move from a place of superstition and mystery and spiritual. And it began to move rapidly towards this very secular, material, scientific world. And that kind of marked the modern era. Well, sociologists noticed around the 1960s a new change. Um, and soon after that, they began to start coining the term postmodernism, that there's something about the world in the same way it shifted from the medieval times to modern times, that it shifted from modern times and now we are really in the beginning of what's called postmodernism. And one of the things that has defined this new, uh, kind of this new era we're living in, is after hundreds of years of, of relying heavily on things like truth, and science, it's even where Friedrich Nietzsche, the, the philosopher in the late 1800s, talked about how God is dead, that essentially science has replaced any need for spirituality. Um, and yet, as modernism was progressing, so was Christianity. And now there is this new tectonic shift as we move away from modernity into post-modernity, where, where there's this sense where Things that were relied upon for the last few hundred years, even things like truth, things like ethics, things like meaning, are slowly being challenged, if not thrown out the window altogether. A matter of fact, Oxford, um, at the beginning of the millennium, talked about how this new age will be the post-truth age, meaning that people are highly spectacle of any sort of truth claims which has made a lot of followers of Jesus um, nervous because the gospel is a truth claim. It is a message. 
that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But here's what's amazing about the gospel, is no matter what era it is, whether it's in Greco-Roman times, medieval times, uh, modern times, or in postmodern times, the gospel works. The gospel continues to move and grow and flourish because it's not tied to a certain time. It's not tied to a certain person. It's not tied to a certain culture. It's tied to Jesus. And everywhere in the world, in any time in history, it has continued to flourish. And we live in this world now that oftentimes we, we celebrate and we want the things uh, that, that seem good, right? We, whether it's we want freedom for, for this, we want liberation for this, we want justice for this, um, and there seems to be this loud cry for these things we want, these convictions we have, and yet at the same time, there's confusion about, well, how do we do that? Mark Sayers, who's a sociologist in Australia, says that we want the kingdom without the king. And I think that summarizes where we are today as a culture. As a, as a world is trying to throw out truth and live into secularism and relativism, we want the kingdom without the king. And Paul, interestingly enough, 2,000 years ago, is facing the same problem we're facing in our current era, where this church in Colossae is, is wrestling through these threats, this pressure. And we talked about how they're facing Roman syncretism, that there is this cultural pressure to just take their, their faith in Jesus and just assimilate it into their culture and into where they're from. There was the threat of Gnostic mysticism, meaning that there's, there's some sort of secret knowledge. And a part of Gnostic mysticism meant that they didn't believe that Jesus was the only Son of God. There was a religious moralism pressing on against it. And this religious moralism was saying, it's great you believe in Jesus, but you also have to act and behave in a certain way. And Paul writes this letter. And as he writes this letter, I can just imagine him writing it today and the Spirit of God speaking loudly saying, listen, in all of the chaos of how can you know what's true and the pressure to assimilate into culture, the pressure to, to think this way or to act this way, I hear the Spirit of God through the letter of Colossians saying, Jesus is enough. Jesus is who he said he is. And so when Paul's writing this 2,000 years ago, I hear it echo so loudly in, in, our, in our day, 2021. We need this message that Jesus is who he said he is. Jesus is enough. And so at the beginning of this letter, as he describes these prayers he has for this church, he then breaks into a poem. And in Colossians 1, 15 through 19, Paul recites this poetic song or hymn. We don't know if he made it up or he, it was something that was already familiar in the early church. But with that in mind, both with where the Colossians were and where we are today, I want you to listen to these words in his description of the greatness of Jesus. He says that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything He might have the supremacy or the preeminence. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. Um, what a beautiful scripture. What a beautiful poem. And I wanted to just, for us to chew on these four truths that Paul would, is longing for this church to grasp. This poem is broken up into two stanzas. The first stanza represents two significant truths. Number one is that in Jesus we find his preeminence. Number two in that first stanza, we find that in Jesus we find our purpose. And then in the second half of the poem, we find that in Jesus we find about his people and his presence. And lastly, in Jesus we find peace. So let's just these, these four things. Again, please hear me out. Number one, and I would say maybe the central theme of the entire letter to the Colossians, Jesus is enough. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. All things came from him. And it's his creation language. He's pointing back to the Genesis story, saying, look, at Jesus wasn't just a God in your pluralistic society. Jesus is the God. He's the creator. That's who Jesus is. He's in the very beginning. He's, he's preeminent. Preeminent meaning that he is supreme, the greatest in that. And this is who Jesus is. This is where we find ourselves. And when we begin to start stepping back and say, well, it's one thing to say, do we agree with this theologically? And it's an entirely another thing to say, if we believe with this, if we believe this theologically, how does this transfer to our life? Do we believe that Jesus is God? He's central, the creator of the universe. He is above all, created all. And that in that there is nothing more significant than him. I would encourage you, I mean, take a step outside, look around, go observe the the waves at the ocean or stand on top of an amazing view on a mountain and be reminded of the greatness of creation. And remember this, that creation always points towards its creator. That Jesus is bigger and more magnificent than you or I could ever imagine. And Paul is driving this home. He says all scripture is pointing to the preeminence of Jesus. Secondly, in Paul's talking about the greatness of Jesus, he says something. He says, all things have been created through him and for him. This is a purpose statement. Meaning all things means you and me. I was created by and through Jesus for Jesus. When I begin to wrap my head around the fact that I know whose I am, who I belong to, and I understand that there is, an, there is an artist, a divine artist who formed me and fashioned me with my unique personality and gift mix and wiring, knowing when I would be born and who my relationship would be. He did that with intention. 
please, would you hear me? You were created by God and for God. You were designed with a purpose. And what's amazing about the gospel is the gospel reverses the order of every other world religion, where every other world religion is a method on how to get to God. And the gospel is a message on how God came to you. It is how he came and searched you out as the creator fashioned and formed you while you were in your mother's womb, knowing that there was a purpose for you on earth. And some of you in the midst of the chaos of the season that we're in need to be reminded you were made by God and for God. Thirdly, as we move to the second stanza in the song or in the hymn or the poem, uh, one thing that we find is that in verse 18 it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. There's two significant things here. This is, this is talking about his people and his presence. Um, I've heard a lot of commentary on the church this year. The church should do this. The church should be like this. The church should respond like this. And, and, and those are important conversations and sometimes they're really well-meaning. But I think it's important for us to remember that when we understand the greatness of Jesus, that he is the head of the body, which is his church. You cannot separate Jesus and his church. We are an extension of, flowing out of who Jesus is. And I think that is both an encouragement for us to speak well of, believe in, pray for the church to accurately portray the body of Christ and also to be praying that in times where that has gone different, in times where we have missed the mark, it's not a time to cast um, disdain. It's not a time to remove yourself because if you are a follower of Jesus, you are part of that body. But step in. Let's be his body and remembering that the body takes its directional control, its maneuvering, its purpose from its head. We're the church. We're his people. Secondly, it says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. That word dwell is its temple language. The presence of God is all around us. What, what a beautiful, beautiful message that we get to carry with us. That when we don't know what's ahead of us, we know who's around us. That it's Jesus who's come. And he, through his incredible, creative, redemptive, sacrificial, loving act, of creating the world, coming to redeem the world through his death and resurrection, has given us his body and his presence. He's among us. And sometimes, you and you might just be sitting here and to be honest, maybe even hurt by the church. And I would just encourage you, how, and maybe wrestle this question, how could Jesus use the church as his vehicle or his tool? And this is what I would encourage you with. All of the mess, all of the brokenness that has and can take place in the church was absorbed into Jesus on the cross. Why can Jesus believe in his church? Well, because through him, there is completeness and reconciliation the same way that it's offered to you. 
the same way that your mess and your brokenness is absorbed into Jesus on the cross, the church has that same assurance. And so there is no plan B for Jesus. Jesus' mission and kingdom in the world will come through his church. Let's step into that. Let's rise up into that. And lastly, the last verse is, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. He's bringing it all together, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. The cross was the greatest moment in human history when all things were brought together in him and gave us peace and i don't want you just to think about tranquility um, or a lack of crisis i want you to to understand this peace is shalom it's everything being put into its right order so here in colossians 1 15 through 19 we are reminded of the greatness of Jesus, the creator, the preeminent one who searches you out, gives you purpose, understands who you are and how he wired you. And he puts you with brothers and sisters to move his kingdom forward, to declare the goodness of the cross, the goodness of his presence, understanding that as we move forward in this life, that because of the cross, God is bringing all things together in Him. This is our hope. How great is Jesus. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.